This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Stories in Music brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. From Peter and the Wolf and the Story of Swan Lake to a hilarious bel canto opera called Juanita the Spanish Lobster, these recordings are designed to introduce classic tales, history, and exciting musical performances to children. The Maestro Classic Stories in Music series has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classic CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. They say that all is fair in love and war, but what if the war is all a ruse? Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, an opera that explores the boundaries of fidelity, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's Così fan tutte. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. In Così fan tutte, Mozart and his librettist Lorenzo de Ponte created an elaborate plot of mistaken identity to explore the nature of love, trust, and infidelity, all set to stunningly beautiful music. I'm Naomi Baratera, and on today's episode, we are thrilled to have Dr. Sean Cooper, a frequent presenter for the Mozart Society of America, explore the history, music, and comic complexities of this masterpiece. Uh, you may recall that Mozart collaborated on Notte de Figaro and Don Giovanni with the Venetian librettist Lorenzo da Ponte. Now, this guy was quite a character. Um, he was friends with Casanova. He had all sorts of scandals and trouble in his life. And at the end, he was sort of running around uh, from country to country trying to find a home. He ended up settling in New York and was a professor of Italian literature up at Columbia College at that time. Uh, and he's buried here downtown. Um, so at this time, it was a big five years for him. He had success after success with Martini Soler, with Salieri, with a bunch of co contemporaries of Mozart. Um, and he is broached on the project for a school for lovers, the school for lovers, by none other than Salieri. We don't really know who proposed this work. There were rumors that the emperor wanted to see this because there had been a scandal in Vienna prior. Um, so we don't know if Salieri approached De Ponte or De Ponte approached Salieri. He says that he did, but he tends to sort of self-aggrandize himself in his, in his memoirs. They had successfully collaborated in the years prior, and there was a lot of precedent for this sort of story uh, in Opera Buffa. There was the school for lovers, the school for husbands, the school for the jealous. Uh, and the model had been set by Boccaccio, Shakespeare, and Marivaux, all of whom uh, from uh, De Ponte derives much of the material. But any concept of intellectual property was, was not seen in the same way that, that we do. Librettists borrowed generously, 
as did uh, composers. In this kind of story, lovers, uh, mostly women, had their fidelity put on trial through various um, tribulations and embroglios. Uh, Salieri began a few trios and some recitative. These have the same titles as in the Mozart. Um, but he abandoned it for reasons unknown. And Mozart and de Ponte picked it up in time for the 1789 revival of Figaro. This event, uh, Mozart completing what Salieri could or would not, is part of this grand conspiracy that is stuck with poor Salieri. So in what was probably a marketing choice, the school for lovers became Così fan tutte, which translates to, essentially, all women do the same. All women act the same or behave the same. It's, it's very implicit, and it is implicitly gender-specific. This quote is from The Marriage of Figaro, uh, if any of you recall. This is sung by Don Basilio, the music master. He's, he's entered into the chambers of Susanna, and he finds the count there, and he assumes that there is some sort of affair happening. He knows the count is after Susanna, and he assumes just sort of by her station that this is something she has acquiesced to. So I think that's kind of important to note that when this statement is made in The Marriage of Figaro, he's wrong. He's wrong about the woman in question. He's wrong about the sentiment. And yet here it is, the title of their, of their third collaboration. So the title, the alternate title remains School for Lovers, and that's incidentally what Da Ponte always referred to it as. And um, I think it's arguably a more suitable title for the piece. It was composed for Carnival of 1790. And Carnival, um, this particular event had social significance which pertains to this opera. During Carnival, people would wear disguises, and they would do things not permitted in their everyday lives. All manner of excess was okay. This opera deals heavily with disguise, and the degree to which disguise, either physical or behavioral, affects social and personal boundaries for those masked and unmasked. The context of the premiere and the compositional process have some intrigue. Francesco and Doroteo Bussani, the Don Alfonso and Despina, were in fact married. And an interesting twist, they were. Uh, this was an interesting twist given that the fact that the opera deals so directly with marriage and the idea of marriage. So De Ponte and the Busanis were not fond of each other. Uh, he tends to separate in his memoirs people into categories of either those who recognized his genius and those who did not. Um, but they did not get along. And he said of her that she was awkward and of little merit and of Signore Busani as knowing something of every profession except that of a gentleman. They didn't really know how to insult each other with flourish back then. He was clearly romantically involved with Adriana Ferrarese, the Fiorligi. This imbroglio reached a point where they were both essentially dishonorably discharged, cast out of Vienna. And De Ponte came here to the States. So he had this quarrel with the Busanis. He was involved with the Sopranos. The emperor showed a particular interest in the mezzo-soprano. They didn't call them mezzo-sopranos then, but that's our term now, um, Villeneuve. And Mozart had his own troubles home with Costanza. While composing Così fan tutte, they had been married about eight years. And around this time, Costanza was away at a spa in Baden. She was there ostensibly for her foot, and she did have health issues. But this particular opera seemed to be, uh, spa, excuse me, seemed to be aimed more towards rejuvenation of the spirit than any sort of true convalescence, particularly that it featured mixed bathing. From his letters, we understand that Mozart was concerned with appearances of indiscretion and that flirtation, at the least, was a topic he felt he needed to broach with Costanza on several occasions, checking her for allowing a gentleman to measure her calf in a game that's equivalent to truth or dare, um, and asserting generally that she was inclined to comply too easily. 
The question of consent is addressed consistently throughout Così Fon Tutte, as it was in Le Nozze di Figaro and Don Giovanni, and it's not wrong to sort of see in this a continuum of those same themes and exploration and discussion. So here we are at the close of the Age of Enlightenment. Mozart and, and the Viennese culture are trying to reconcile the nature of marriage, romantic love, and sex. These, those of Mozart and Costanza's social standing tended to focus on marriage for the sake of love and put the question of fidelity in a different place than for those of the aristocracy who were married most often for convenience uh, and subsequently for whom relative sexual permissiveness was understood. Um, Andrew Steptoe details in his Mozart de Ponte edition how foreigners were amazed at the openness of infidelities in Viennese society. <clears throat> Detailing an encounter in which a man consoled with great empathy his wife as she lamented separation from her lover. This is the culture of the Enlightenment. This is, this is what the emperor was all about. Um, firm, social, yet somewhat permeable interpersonal boundaries. And the dichotomy in the conceptualization of marriage and romantic love, this is the climate in which Così Fan Tutte was composed. Mozart and De Ponte would discover that by the time the war premiered, the climate had changed dramatically and the age of enlightenment with the death of the emperor had met its end. So, the players. Don Alfonso, old philosopher. He was first sung by Francesco Bussani, married fellow, who had sung Dr. Bartolo and Antonio in The Marriage of Figaro, and the Commendatore and Mazzetto in the Vienna production of Don Giovanni. And you'll note with each pair of characters, they're not seen on stage at the same time. Now we have different singers do these roles. Um, but he was the original for both of those. Ferrando, an officer, was first sung by Vincenzo Calvesi, who appeared in Salieri's The School for Lovers. Guglielmo, an officer, was sung by the great Francesco Benucci. This guy was the first Figaro. He was a superstar of Vienna. And he was in the Viennese production of Leporello. Fiordaligi, a lady of Ferrara, living in Naples, betrothed to Guglielmo, was sung by Adriana Ferrarese. She had sung Susanna in the Figaro revival and was fairly universally considered to be rigid in her acting and lacking comic sensibilities. Dorbella was sung by Louise Villeneuve. And Despina was sung by Dorothea Bussani, who was often praised for her chest voice and whose debut was the first Carabino. So I will get into the minutia of this particular libretto in a little more in depth, because with this opera, it's less about what happens, but how it happens. These interactions, proclamations, the subtle shifts in viewpoints as the action progresses, that's the story. It's measured by the character's changes in perspective. We don't have to track props over multiple acts, no notes or commissions or seals. It's just about what people say and do, and how those things line up or do not line up. So Così Fantute is a constant and progressive unmooring. If the marriage of Figaro unfolds and Don Giovanni deepens, then Così Fantute unravels. I'll give you the traditional setting so you'll have a frame of reference when you see tonight's production, because it's a modernized version. And that's kind of the fun, that you have that frame of reference um, sort of um, fresh in your mind. We are set in Naples. At this time, this is a very uh, bustling port city, one of the major cities in, in Europe. Um, and it is uh, significant that the ladies come from, and they are ladies, properly, in this, in this time, um, that they come from Ferrara. So to come from there to Naples is coming to the big city. And that's part of sort of the excitement. And that's highlighted very much in this uh, production. And there's Vesuvius, right? The presence of Vesuvius is always felt in Naples. 
So we open in a cafe, somewhat in the middle of the chain of events, with Ferrando and Guglielmo, two officers, hotly defending the honor of their betrothed, Dorabella and Fiordoligi, respectively. Don Alfonso, the old philosopher, has drawn the ire of the young men by casting doubts upon their fiancé's capacity for fidelity. The men go so far as to threaten violence to Don Alfonso via their swords, but Don Alfonso claims pacifism and a preference to only fight duels at the dinner table. He asserts that fidelity in women, like the phoenix of Arabia, is a thing assumed in this world, yet never found. Each man asserts it is his fiancé who is the phoenix. When asked for proof, they list the following. The time they've put in, the ladies' upbringing, their sublime thoughts, compatibility, even temperament, selflessness, firm character, protestations, promises, and oaths. This is a very detailed list. These guys have put some thought into this matter. So the gentlemen strike up a bet. The ladies' fidelity against 100 coins. Cento zacchini. Not a very gentlemanly thing to do at all. In this caper, the boys, we might call them based on their behavior, agree upon their soldier's honor to do as Don Alfonso instructs them and to give no clues to the women. To celebrate his win, Ferrando says he'll write Dorabella a song, and Guillermo will celebrate by throwing a dinner. This guy is generally preoccupied with eating, by the way. <laughs> Don Alfonso asks for an invite to the feast, and they all have a good laugh. In a garden near the sea, um, Fiordaligi and Dorabella stare lovingly at locket portraits of the boys extolling their virtues. Of Guglielmo Fioriligi praises his lovely mouth, his noble face, the face of a warrior, of a lover. Dorabella sees in Ferrando's eyes arrows of fire, eyes that both entice and menace. They declare their happiness, and Dorabella confidently challenges the god of love to smite her with a life of misery if her heart ever strays. Fiordaligi says she feels like a pazzarella, like a silly little girl. And she's inspired by a certain tingling in her veins to play a joke on her fiancé. Dorabella feels in her soul that their weddings must be on the horizon, so Fiordaligi reads her poem. M.P. Matrimonio Presto. So marriage is quite on the brain. The boys are past due, yet it is Don Alfonso who appears in feigned distress, alerting the women to the news that their fiancés have received a royal call 
to battle. Ferrando and Guillermo sulk into the garden, and the women's stricken request to be driven through by the men's swords rather than face life apart from them. The soldiers are called to their boat, and Don Alfonso revels in the comedy he finds. Uh, they promise to write each other every day, and all five seem to genuinely sort of give in to the sentimentality of it. The stage quiets when the boys exit, and the sisters and Don Alfonso sing a truly sublime trio as they track the boat across the water with a silent prayer. As the forlorn sisters depart, there's also a wonderful moment of recitative for Don Alfonso that springs abruptly into Ariozo. Uh, he praises his own machinations, his acting talents, asserts that those who express their ardor so emphatically are the ones most prone to change in their hearts. He remarks on the folly of resting 100 coins against a woman's heart. And then in this moment of Ariozo, Don Alfonso states, better to plow the sea Better to sow the sand, better to try to catch the wind with a net than to trust the heart of a woman. It's harsh stuff. But as singers, uh, we, we love these sorts of moments. They clue us into the character's inner workings and motivations, 
And in many roles outside of Mozart, the text and music might not afford you this kind of crucial information. So clearly, Don Afonso's perception of gender behavior is driven by some sort of heartbreak or deception in his past, something that dramatically altered his worldview. This is interpretation on my end, but Mozart has a pattern of inserting flashes of, of deeper inner monologue between larger musical movements. So inside the sister's home, we find Despina, a maid, again sung by Miss O'Hara, um, and she's preparing the ladies some chocolate. And in a trope of opera buffa, the maid is complaining. Uh, in this case, the chocolate drives the point home. She bemoans, rather understandably, why should I whip the chocolate with a dry mouth? Isn't my mouth the same as yours? Why should you be given the flavor and I the smell? So she tastes the chocolate. And that's Despina, sort of in a nutshell. In the course of minutes with the conclusion of one scene and the beginning of another, we're given the ethos for both Despina and Alfonso. These two characters stand on either side of these couples representing kind of extremes. Alfonso, a man of certainty, with something to prove, and Despina, meh, you know, whatever. Uh, the sisters return trying to one-up each other with an extreme response to the departure of their fiancés. Fiordaligi requesting poison or a knife, threatening to bury herself alive. And Dorabella, shut the windows. I hate the light. I hate the air that I breathe. I hate myself. I don't know if any of you have raised teenagers, but it sounds, sounds familiar. So it might sound melodramatic, but that's kind of the point. Mozart allows this kind of silliness, but infuses the, infuses the music with this great compassion for his characters. They're both flawed and beautiful, and sometimes both sincere and over the top. And this dichotomy seems rather in line with the general thesis of the opera. So as Dorabella explains that she would die were Ferrando to perish, Despina consoles them with worldly counsel, which is essentially, no woman ever died from love. Anyway, you're better off. Many other fish in the sea. I see some nods here. So when the sisters question how they could ever want another man after they've seen Guglielmo and Ferrando, Despina responds, they have what every other man has. One man is as good as the other because they're none of them worth anything. She encourages the sisters to amuse themselves. Um, and eventually, she becomes directly involved in Don Alfonso's trickery. But at this point, this is just pure instinct, her urging to forget the guys and move on. This is her aria in its entirety. Trust in men, in soldiers. Don't let anyone hear that. They're all made of the same stuff. Leaves quivering in the breezes are more stable than men. With their lying tears, their lying faces, and lying voices. They only love us to please themselves. After loving us, they treat us poorly, deny us affection. One might as well ask for pity from a Neanderthal. Let's treat them like they treat us, these evil, indiscreet characters. Let's love for our own convenience. Let's love for vanity. La, 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 la.
so Despina seems to have a pointed view on love as well that is informed by personal experience. Well, Don Alfonso finds her alone and offers her a favor. She assures him that a man of his age can offer her nothing. Uh, and one imagines Da Ponte enjoying this sort of uh, scripted exchange for the Busanis, for whom he loathed so much. Uh, so Don Alfonso uses gold to enlist Despina in this caper, and she and the sisters are introduced to the disguised versions of Ferrando and Guglielmo, Don Alfonso's good friends, the Albanians, now devoted, now devoted suitors to the sisters from Ferrara. And this is kind of a long-standing problem with the opera, just the sheer plausibility of this, that in the comfort of their own homes, in the, in the light of day, that these sisters would not recognize their fiancés. And it's a real issue. I think for Viennese audiences, they understood the convention so much that it was not an issue. But over the centuries, this has been something that has been um, addressed in a, a number of different ways, and that's kind of part of the fun when you look at one production to another, like how they will deal with this very practical problem. There are some other problems that have more to do with content that are a little um, harder to evade. Uh, but in this production, as we'll get to, um, they deal with it quite well. Um, so they're indignant at the presence of the Albanians. These men express their affections toward each other's fiancés. It does not go well. Fiordaligi's aria. You and any other man may try to seduce our souls, but we will take the love we have to our graves, like a reef staying firm in the wind and waves. A fire that pleases us and consoles us burns within us. Again with the fire. So Guillermo touts his and Ferrando's attributes. Look, touch, observe, the two men, mad with love, were strong and well-built, whether it's by chance or by merit. We have lovely feet, Lovely eyes, beautiful noses, and our mustaches are triumphs of manhood. Um, he thinks very highly of himself, disguised or not. Uh, and on and on. So this, this sends the sisters uh, out of the room. Uh, the boys, gleefully confident of their success, leave, and Despina elaborates on love's philosophy. If you lose one lover, take two more. It's only natural. What is love? Pleasures, ease, taste, joy. Fun, happiness, it's no longer love if it becomes inconvenient. In the finale of the act, we again find the sisters in a garden, now a space and time to pine for their betrothed, so far away on the battlefront. The Albanians burst in and pretend to drink arsenic, driven by the desperation for the ladies. So here is another problem, at least to our modern eyes. The degree to which love, and more specifically consent, um, is obtained via idolatry, persistence, insistence, and coercion. Uh, in this production, uh, this will be addressed, but no production can really offer a fix for this. Only a take, only a, only a perspective. Don Alfonso and, Espina, Alfonso and Espina encourage the sisters to comfort the dying men, this perpetuating this kind of relieve the man's suffering angle of courtship. And Espina leaves in search of a doctor. The pretense of suicide facilitates close physical proximity as the women focus on the heartbeats, pulses, and frailty of the men. Despina arrives disguised as a wild, eccentric doctor and uses a giant magnet to extract the poison from the dying Albanians. This is a reference to Anton Mesmer, the physician uh, from whom the, the term mesmerism comes. Um, and as they stir, the sisters are endeared to them in their pitiable state. Yet the boys overreach and they ask for a kiss. The women leave indignant at the request, and the boys, quite pleased with themselves, finish the act as certain of their victories as they began. <laughs> 
So let's talk, uh, let's have our own little uh, intermission here, and we'll discuss a little bit about the production uh, tonight. So uh, what we've had in Naples with this bustling with people and ocean breezes and an iconic monolith dominating the horizon. And now we have Coney Island. You can see the parallels between Naples of the time and this idea of something monolithic that represents um, change and motion. So one of the, the, the real um, solutions that Fellow McDermott, the director, has come up with um, is having these ladies sort of on vacation, right? Um, that they're at Coney Island and that they're surrounded by, by these lights and these sounds and these, these smells. The director says this piece is, is about the playfulness of identity swap, 
the kind of craziness between the interaction of the craziness and the sexes around love. And he says, most of all, it's a show about love. Being away from the home and the idea of the fairground and the sideshow being this magical place where their rules are not the same as everyday life. The deception would be, uh, the deception would be the magic of being swept away by the fantasy of that world. So this is Fellow McDermott, the, the director, and I think that that's a very nice solution. They're sort of, they're sort of giving in. Um, and, and, and incidentally, the, uh, the, the lighting, um, by, I believe it's by uh, Tom Pye, yeah. Um, this is a very a difficult trick, actually, to have a stage in which a world is dark, and yet there is something bright that pops out, and yet we're all in the dark. Um, it's very beautiful, the sets and lights and, uh, and costumes in this production. Um, so uh, uh, one thing you'll notice uh, here is that the men are, um, the director describes them as sexy carnies. One thing that's interesting about that is it sort of takes away the question of, of class, um, which is something that's very present in the original iteration of this opera, but it's not really the point in the same way that it is in The Marriage of Figaro, where the Count is sort of using this position to take advantage of Susanna sexually. But what you can see in this production is a kind of body language where, and this, this is a great shot because they're just, they're, they're just not sure, these ladies, you know? And the guys are sort of very aggressive and I think that's to the point uh, of any uh, of these productions. So moving on, um, act two opens with Despino once again, encouraging the sisters to entertain multiple suitors. As they warm to the idea, Despina explains, a woman must learn early on the little tricks to trap her lovers. Fake laughter, fake tears, give hope to all men, handsome or ugly. She must know how to hide her feelings, how to lie without blushing, and how to command obedience like a queen. Bella finds all this rather sensible, yet Fiordiligi remains concerned about their reputations and the possibility of discovery by their fiancés. She softens a bit, and they choose their prospective partners. So the opposite, right? Ferrano for Dorabella and Guglielmo for Fiordiligi again, these opposite pairings. So Alfonso rushes, rushes in and hastens them to the garden. There is an elaborate spread with flowers and music prepared by the faux Albanians, and the chorus departs. Despina and Alfonso continue to encourage the two pairs. Guillermo and Dorabella are left alone. 
Guillermo presses her for a sign of affection, persistence in wooing again. She concedes, offering her heart-shaped locket, the locket which contains Ferrando's portrait. Ouch. They sing a duet in which the discussion of the heart shape of the locket is used to bridge the subject of the physical heart and all else within anatomical proximity. Give me your heart. You already have it. Then what's beating right here? Perque batti 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 qui. If you give me your heart, then what's beating right there? Que mai balza 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 li. So this is very playful, which is um, definitely an aspect of, of Mozart that I think is very signature, this idea of playfulness. You can find it in his letters and in his works. So he places his heart against hers, and things reach a fever pitch with Dorabella uh, proclaiming that she feels as if she has Vesuvius in her breast.
They take their game elsewhere, off stage, and Fiordiligi and Ferrando enter with an entirely different tone. It is not going well. Fiordiligi accuses Ferrando of wanting to steal her peace of mind, which is accurate. He gives a seemingly sincere apology, expressing remorse for his feelings. She departs, and he shares the good news with Guglielmo, who then shows Ferrando the locket containing his portrait. When, he, when Ferrando uh, flies into a rage, Guglielmo, who was only embracing Dorabella a few moments before, tries to cheer him up with, why get worked up over a woman who isn't worth two cents? He then goes on a diatribe about how, despite his noble defense, women continually disappoint, essentially parroting Don Alfonso's pessimistic stance. So he has been assimilated into Alfonso's kind of worldview. Ferrando is bummed out at this point, schooled by love. Not only has his fiancée given in to his best friend's advances, but he seems to be struggling with some real and deep affection for Fiordiligi. He's now got a first-hand understanding after working so hard to frame the idea of romantic love but it is complex, nuanced, and often turbulent. Yet even through this, he is reluctant to cast Dorabella aside. Guglielmo makes an attempt to console Ferrando for falling in his, failing in his seduction by pointing out the fact that no woman could stray from a man such as himself. He asks for half of the money wager, but Don Alfonso has one last trick up his frilly sleeve. Despina, upon singing Dorabella, instantly recognizes that a shift has taken place now you're a woman of the world, she says. De Ponte chooses his words carefully, and this pretty implicitly colors the events that have happened off stage with Guillermo and Dorabella. She says, I tried to resist, he was just too clever. Fioridligi's concern with the heart uh, is with the heart, and she expresses that, that in love, not only, she's in love not only with Guillermo, but also with the disguised Ferrando, so both men. So she didn't think herself capable of loving two men at once, but this is what she's experiencing at this time. When she asks, how can a person change their heart in just one day, Dorabella replies, what a ridiculous question, because we're women. <laughs> and thus we have motion to the finale, which is where this central question is resolved, at least superficially. Um, Dorabella describes love as a little thief, a little snake. He gives us peace and then he takes it away. Here again, there's the assault on peace. He opens a path to your heart through your eyes then takes away your freedom and chains up your soul. If you let him have his way, it can, be, it can be sweet and pleasurable. If you try to fight him back, he'll make you feel disgusted with yourself. If the snake sits by your heart and pecks at it, let him, and I'll do the same.
So that's kind of chipper, that particular piece, when you think about the, the, the content here. We've seen in the course of the day a shift that takes years in a person, in Dorabella. She's now resigned herself to a perspective more in line with Despina's, and this is reflected musically. In this piece, a style very much in character for the peasant class, you could hear Despina singing something like this. So she has been absorbed into Despina's worldview. In this text, the shift can be traced through the progression of the progressively less romantic conceptualization of the heart. The heart is something that is concrete, that she could hold on to, or at least it was. And now it's something that she's given away and she no longer feels control. She expresses that love and by implication sex is something nuanced and multifaceted. She's schooled by love. But rather than solely abiding in this perspective, she says, let's go marry the Albanians. For these women, all roads lead to marriage. And that's the true dramatic backdrop for women of society at this time. It's all staged for them from the start. So the legitimate question becomes, not only can they be faithful, but faithful to what? Fiordaligi does not concede. She sends for two of their fiancés uniforms. Uh, apparently these uniforms are just lying around. Uh, the plan is for her and Dorabella to dress as soldiers and join their fiancés in battle rather than concede to all this madness. This instance of, of cross-dressing was a, was a pretty frequently used technique in opera buffa, um, but I think it's curious in this instance that when she's kind of proverbially been, been boxed into a corner, she attempts to empower herself by assuming the visage of a man, as if that's the only avenue in which she'd have any real agency. So Ferrando burst in and Fioriligi asks, what do you want? He says, my heart, your heart or my death. And she finally concedes. Cruel man, you've won. What do you want with me? Do what you want with me. So he's essentially coerced her with the threat of a second suicide attempt, uh, and he's worn her down, is more to the point. And that's in line with this character of persistence of wooing. So poor Ferrando seems quite sincere at this point, but it may very well be that it's this kind of authenticity in his expression that is the thing that breaks her down. She says, though, I'm not strong enough. So the two leave stage to, uh, quote, language and languish in sweet affection.
Guglielmo, having observed, is now himself bummed. His day was going very well to this point. Fiordaligi, whose, whose name translates to flower of devotion, he calls instead flower of the devil and wishes Ferrando to choke her and then him. And Don Alfonso suggests that they get married, adding, deep down you love these plucked crows. In the end, you can only blame yourself because young, old, beautiful, or ugly, repeat after me, così fan tutte. So uh, that's that. And the finale includes a lot more of the same. Disguises, deception, revelation, ridicule, confusion. Despino's final statement being, I'm confused, I'm ashamed, is this a dream? Which is interesting because that's the sort of language that you usually hear in, at the finale of an internal act of an opera buffa, not at the conclusion of the work in its entirety. So but still, this all falls under the technical term, the actu finale, of the lieto fine, which translates to, to happy ending. For this genre, the, the lieto fine was absolutely compulsory for late 18th century Venice audiences. The theater was a place in which bad behavior could be on display and some tough questions could be posed, but order always needed to be restored by the end. So it had to be zipped up as the audience left the theater. The finale uh, parallels not the marriage of Figaro, with each character's seemingly authentic expression of at least momentary humility and forgiveness, but that of Don Giovanni, in which the Don's absence is presented through the text as a just conclusion to his misdeeds, but through the music as somewhat dramatically unsettled. It unravels. The characters are confused about where they stand, and the audience will likely feel the same way. And if ambiguity is the psychological realism that is present in this, in this opera, and what is a classical opera. Uh, because of this, productions have taken great liberties with characters trying to, to fix it, uh, but it hasn't really fully, perfectly fit into any one historical culture. Uh, and this ill-fitting quality has made it perfect for all of them. The questions are relevant just as much now as they were in 1790. But where is that line? Where is that sweet spot? It's a moving target then, and it remains so. Mozart and de Ponte don't really attempt to provide answers as much as dare to ask the questions. In one of the final moments, the statement is made, fortunate is the man who is able to make the best of all diversity. That's a pretty bold thing to say, considering what the women have been through in this opera. Then they continue on, always look on the bright side. Laugh at what for others causes tears, and then you'll stay calm. Yet still, it offers no solution other than to essentially roll with it. And there's a certain appropriateness of this, as, uh, as of the finale, uh, uh, sorry, as the final somewhat messy statement of the Age of Enlightenment, which literally ended then. More of a consolation this would be if it were not gender specific. So it means specifically for men to always look on the bright side. Um, so the piece is very justifiably called misogynistic, uh, but it depicts misogyny more than it affirms it, right? Uh, so the essence of it is hopeful and playful and empathetic and exists on all those planes, and that's why it's still so compelling to us centuries later. So tonight, for those of you that are staying for the performance, allow yourself to view this piece with modern eyes. We are in a historic time where we're at least attempting an honest analysis of questions of gender dynamic and gender equality. It seems to have some real momentum. So resist the urge to couch the more difficult moments as exclusive to the mid-20th century Coney Island or Enlightenment Vienna. Take the, taking the uncomfortable with the sublime is an enlightened perspective anyway. Thanks for being here today.
Thanks to the Guild for inviting me. Um, and I want to give a shout out to the Mozart scholars, people like Mary Hunter, Bruce Allen Brown, John Rice, Alan Tyson. They're kind of the Indiana Joneses of musicology out there, unearthing manuscripts and solving riddles and deepening our understanding of Mozart and his contemporaries. Thank you very much. And for those of you going across the plaza to see the performance, enjoy it. to Dr. Sean Cooper for guiding us through the music and plot of Cosi Fan Tutte. This Mozartian masterpiece is currently on stage at the Met through April 19th in an exciting new production by Phelan McDermott. The action is set in 1950s Coney Island, complete with bearded ladies, fire eaters, and a Ferris wheel. For more information, visit metopera.org and be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on your favorite social media platform. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.